Welcome to the Southcrest Live podcast. If this is your first time to listen, please connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, you see that word, therefore, which means it refers back to the verses in front of it. Paul's talking about Timothy not being shy, not being timid. Verse 8, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. For this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I'm persuaded that he is able to keep what I've committed to him until that day. Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. See y'all. <laughs> Do y'all know what I'm doing? I'm taking a stand. Now, you're not going to forget that, are you? That's what we're going to talk about today, taking a stand. Not that, but taking a stand for Christ, to be courageous. Adrian Rogers tells about a, told about a man who bragged that he had cut off the tail of a man-eating lion with his pocket knife. Somebody asked him, well, why didn't you cut off the lion's head? And he said, somebody had already done that. <laughs> so you can be pretty brave that way. Listen. If there was ever a time to stand for Jesus, it's now. Some of you may remember that old hymn we used to sing, Stand up, stand up for Jesus, you soldiers of the cross. Lift high his royal banner. We must not suffer loss. It must not suffer loss. Paul is talking to Timothy. Paul's in prison. He knows he's about to die. This is the last letter. And so he's passing off his mission to a younger man in his 30s who is, has a tendency to be a little shy at times, I guess, or maybe he had gotten discouraged and was backing off a little bit. And so now Paul begins to encourage him in certain ways. And I want you to notice he's encouraging Timothy to take up the mission, and he begins by saying, stand unhesitatingly for Jesus Christ. In fact, in verses 6 through 18, three times you find the phrase, do not be ashamed. You find it in verse 8, verse 12, and verse 16. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. 
the testimony of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul uses the personal pronoun to identify Timothy with him. He said, Timothy, we're in this. He's our Lord. Don't be ashamed of Jesus Christ. Now, we can understand this to mean don't be ashamed to talk about him, to testify of him, or anything about the, the evidence of Jesus Christ. Do not be ashamed of that. But personally, I think it's deeper than just that. Because in that day, talking about a man dying on the cross for the sins of people seemed a little simple. It wasn't too scholarly. And yet Paul says, and he wrote to the Corinthians earlier in 1 Corinthians 1.18, he said, the preaching of the cross is foolishness to them who are perishing. We have the greatest message in the world. We do. We have the message that Jesus Christ, who lived a sinless life, went to the cross on our behalf, and God put on him the sins of the world, and Jesus died. He physically died but rose again, conquering death, and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And when we pray through Jesus and commit our life to Jesus and believe that God rose him, raised him from the dead, we are saved. We should never be ashamed about the message of Jesus Christ. Amen. Sure, it's simple. It's simple enough for a child to understand it and yet profound enough that we all are saved through that same message. Years ago in one of the Italian wars, the military band was marching through various villages trying to recruit volunteers to fight in the war. And when they would march through these villages, some of the younger men would go and get a weapon, sometimes a gun, sometimes a sword, from their houses, and then they would fall in line at the end of the procession. An old woman, stirred by the military music, went hurriedly back into her house. She had no sword, no gun. She only had a broomstick. But she came out, and she joined that march. Her fellow villagers were laughing at her and jeering at her. What in the world can an old woman do for the war? And she looked at him and said, I don't really care as long as you know whose side I'm on. I've told you before in a sermon several weeks ago, months ago, and I don't expect you to remember it, but I mentioned the Boxer Rebellion or the Boxer Uprising in China, which happened in 1899 to 1901, about two years. And in that rebellion, the Chinese rebelled against any foreign influence in the land to trade or politics or religion or technology that occurred during those years of that particular dynasty. By August of 1900, over 230 foreigners, tens of thousands of Chinese Christians an unknown number of rebels, their sympathizers, and other innocent bystanders were killed in this chaos. One particular recording mentions rebels that captured one of the mission stations. Evidently, it was a missionary school, had students training in Christianity or not, or training to be missionaries. 
The rebels captured this place. They sealed off every exit from that mission station except one gate, which they left open. They took a cross, laid it in the ground in the dirt, and they told all the missionaries and all the students that were there that they were, if they would walk out of that gate and trample on the cross, then they would be allowed to live. The first seven students walked out and trampled on the cross, and they were allowed to go free. But the eighth student was a young woman, a young girl, I should say, who came to the cross. She knelt down. She prayed for strength, stood up, walked around the cross right into the firing squad. Ninety-two of the remaining students, which was all that was left, did the same thing, and they walked to their death rather than trample the cross. The strength that was infused into 92 of those students came from that one girl who was not ashamed. What a tremendous lesson of the possibility of what your courage and my courage could do for other people in their walk for Christ. Paul said, Timothy, do not be ashamed of the gospel. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of Jesus Christ. It's the only way for people to be saved. It's the greatest gift on earth. What makes me ashamed is when people who are high-profile preachers on television and they are asked specifically about the gospel of Jesus Christ and is he the only way to be saved and they just smile and hem-haw around and don't have the guts to say, yes, he's the only way to be saved. I'm not ashamed of the testimony of Jesus Christ. Paul also said, you stand unashamedly with, unbel- with not unbelievers, with, with believers. Stand unashamedly with believers. Paul said, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Later on, he mentions again that he's a prisoner because of Jesus Christ. There were a lot of unkind things going on to Christians in 67 AD. You see, they Christians were considered to be dishonorable, disgusting, disgraceful. Nero had blamed them for setting fire to Rome. What Paul was proclaiming was that anyone who professed Jesus Christ as their Savior would be saved from all sin. And it's quite evident that a lot of negative things were happening to Paul. In fact, I read it to you last week or week before. I can't remember, but it, all the things that had happened to Paul simply because of the gospel. And that's why Paul said, don't be ashamed of me. You'll see later in chapter 4, a lot of people had abandoned him because he was in prison, and it would have been dangerous for them to associate with Paul, who was being used, who would have been, who will be used as an example of executing Christians, the, the spokesperson. But no matter how negative things may become against the Word of God, or the work of God, believers should never be ashamed of other believers, and especially those who communicate God's Word. God's people should never be ashamed of those who faithfully teach the Word of God. If you want to be ashamed of someone, you'd be ashamed of a teacher who says that men evolved from a monkey. You'd be ashamed of something that, of a leader who promotes any kind of immoral behavior and says, well, it's just the culture we live in. You'd be ashamed of some college professor who says, we just happen to be here because of some cosmic explosion. Be ashamed of what's being put on TV. Be ashamed of what's happening in a lot of churches today, but don't be ashamed of the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God. You stand up and defend it. 
You stand with other believers. And Paul said, you may even be a partaker with me in suffering. He wasn't telling Timothy, you've got to go punish yourself and become an ascetic who, who denies himself everything. But he's saying, Timothy, when you stand for Christ, in fact, later in chapter 3, verse 12, he says, all those who live godly will suffer persecution from time to time. He said, don't be ashamed. You endure suffering He actually says in chapter 2, verse 12, we're going to reign with him also, reign with Jesus. And then he says, Timothy, you stand unapologetically on the gospel. Verses 9 through 11 have one of the clearest presentations of the gospel that you're going to find in all the Bible. In fact, if you ever just sometimes begin to wonder, you just go back and read verses 9 through 11 because the word thee is in front of the word gospel in verse 8. The gospel according to the power of God. It's, there's only one gospel. You know that. There's only one way to be saved, and that's through Jesus Christ. But I want you to notice what he says about this gospel. He's passing this off to a young man. He said, don't you ever forget this. Notice the elements of this salvation, of this gospel. It's opposed. Listen, it's opposed to works religion, legalism. It's opposed to that. The Jewish people had come out of legalism. And some people just can't get over that. I guess in some ways we are all recovering Pharisees because we just can't get a grasp on this. But look at what he says. First of all, he saved us. Aorist tense. Aorist means it happens at a point in time, period, right then. At some point in your life, you asked God to forgive you of your sin. You believed in your heart that Jesus Christ lived a sinless life, went to the cross, took our sin, was resurrected. You place your faith and trust. You asked Christ to come into your life. You gave your life to him. And guess what? Boom, right then. You were immersed in the righteousness of Jesus. You were saved to the uttermost. You don't add anything to that. Now, as a result of that, you are baptized to show that you really have been saved. It's the first act of obedience. But I can dunk you till you look like a prune, and it will not save you. You need to understand that. God, God's the one that had legitimate grounds to be ashamed of us. But he loved us so much that he saved us. And when you stop to consider that the holy God of this universe saved us, that thought should immediately stop us from being ashamed of the word of God. And don't miss what it says, God saved us. We didn't save ourselves. Which leads to the second part in verse 9. He says he called us with a holy calling. He set us apart is actually the word. It's a positional word. It, it means that you, he saved us, and now he has set you apart as his child to live a life in a different way than the rest of the world. Not a legalism. The power of the Holy Spirit guides you, but obviously God's moral laws haven't changed. Now, the ceremonial laws with Israel and the national laws with Israel have changed according to the new covenant, but the moral laws of Jesus have not changed. And and the Holy Spirit 
guides us, but we, we, but we hear a different message. Back in World War II, they were looking for some help with guys who could do Morse code, the telegraphers. And there were a lot of people outside the telegraph office waiting to be interviewed, and they could hear some dots and dashes going on. And all of a sudden, one man just got up and ran in the door. And he got the job. Because what was being issued out there with all those dots and dashes, it says... Anyone that can read this or understand this coming to my office immediately. Well, I want to tell you, we, we march to the beat of a different drum. We hear God's voice speaking to us, guiding us, and, and, and we are in him. God has saved you from your sin, forgiven you, immersed you in the righteousness of Jesus, and now he set you apart. You are his child. You are his redeemed. He's also graced us. Notice in verse 9, according, not according to our works. He holds on to us. He didn't save us because of what we do. You may have one of those credit cards that gives you reward points, or maybe you've signed up with some, just about every place you go now wants you to sign up and get reward points because they want you to come back. And, and sometimes, you know, you get reward points and you use them. You redeem them. But I want to tell you something. There are no reward points in salvation. You didn't come to Christ. Well, you know, I got about, I got about 100 points here. After all, I went to church. I did all the church stuff. I know all the church language. I took communion. I've, well, I was even baptized as a baby. Whatever. You don't come with any reward points. Listen, if anybody had reward points, it would have been me. <laughs> I mean, I, I thought I was born in the church. But the fact is, when you come to God, you, you don't have anything. Nothing. You're not partially saved before you get saved. You're totally lost before you come to Christ. And he saves you by his grace. Something we didn't deserve. You didn't earn it. And not only that, he not only saved us, he not only set us apart by calling him, he, he not only graced us, he has regenerated us. Notice in verse 10, it says, he has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. A couple of things here. He's abolished death. It doesn't mean he's done away with it. It means he's rendered it useless. He has made it ineffective. Hebrews 2.14 says, Through death, Jesus might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. Abolish and destroy, the same word in the Greek, and the real meaning has not to do with it, not to do away with it altogether, but to render it harmless. It's like taking the pen out of an unexploded bomb or taking the fuse off of it to make it of no effect, to rob it 
1 Corinthians 15, 55 says that Jesus' resurrection took the sting out of death. You don't have to be afraid. Now, listen carefully. You don't, I'm not afraid to die. I'm not looking forward to the process <laughs> because I don't know what that's going to be. I don't. I don't get to pick how I'm going to die. But once you die, death has no sting. All it does is it runs an escort service home for the believer. Really. It's the Uber service to heaven for the believer. <laughs> Only Jesus paid it. He's about, you don't have to be afraid. Because the same grace, listen to me, the same grace that saved you is going to be the grace that meets you when you get there. We don't have to be afraid when we see Jesus. He already knows everything we've done. He's already forgiven us. And he continually forgives us so that when we see him, there's no fear in death. He's abolished it. Now, in the perfect day when the Lord returns, death will be done away with completely. In fact, what is the parent of death? You ever thought about it? Sin. Death did not come into the world until sin entered the world. We've been forgiven of our sins. We're still going to die physically unless the Lord returns. But when we get to heaven, when we get to be with the Lord, we shall ever always be with him. There is no death there. The reversal has been completed. He reversed the fact that he gave us life, put his spirit. See, Adam and Eve's spirit died the moment they sinned. Then they died in their mind, emotions, and will, their soul and ultimately in their body. Well, when you get saved, Jesus comes to give you life. He begins to change your thinking, and ultimately, he will reverse the physical part. We'll get a new body, no pain, no sorrow, no death. And I hope by lunch today, y'all get excited about that. <laughs> but I also want you to notice something else. This is really good. This is worth the price of admission today right here. It says, he's brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. One commentator said he's brought it out into the light. It once was so dim, but now it's so different. In other words, if you think about it, just about every civilization that's been known on this earth has had some crude belief in the afterlife. It's interesting when you would see, say, the Egyptians, and they were buried with all this stuff that they were going to need on the other side. And even in the Old Testament, death seemed a little dim. We didn't completely understand it. But now, because of the gospel and because of Jesus Christ and because of what he's done in our life, do you know what's going to happen to you after you die? It's been brought to light in the gospel Jesus Christ died for us. We're told Paul wrote to the, sec the, the, the second letter to the Corinthians, when, you, when you're absent from this body, 
You'll be present with the Lord. By the way, the word absent means to leave, to emigrate, and the word present is the same word for homeland. So when you draw your last breath, you leave this and go home. That's where our heart is. That's where home is. It's been brought to light. You've been given life and immortality. You once were dead, spiritually dead. And you look at the world around us and you see a lot of dead people walking around who don't have a clue what life is about. And the decisions they make just make it worse. Until the light of the glorious gospel shines unto them and they give their life to Christ and then all of a sudden it all makes sense, doesn't it? Amen? Paul also said, Timothy, you stand undoubtedly in assurance. Verse 12, I know for this reason I suffer these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed for I oida. O-I-D-A, oida is the word I know. There's two words for know in the New Testament. One of them is gnosko, which means I know by experience. You know how long I preach by experience. Don't say too long. (laughs) But the word oida means I have come to a settled conclusion. There is absolutely no doubt in my mind about this. It's a stronger word. It's a knowledge of what God is in himself and what makes him dependable in any circumstance. And notice what Paul says, and I've used this at some funerals, so if this sounds familiar, and you'll hear it again. Paul said, I have the greatest knowledge. I know whom I have believed in. Not what. It's not what you believe, it's who you know. It refers back to verses 8, 9, and 10 to God the Father and Jesus Christ, the Son, the Savior. I know whom I have believed. I have believed, perfect tense. That means it happens at a point in time and the effects are still going. I believed back on the road to Damascus and my life is still bearing out. I'm still saved. I have believed in him and I love the word and am persuaded. Listen to this. The word means to be tranquilized, to have a calm spirit, to rest in total assurance that all is well. Only Christians have that. I rest. I'm, I'm, I'm calm. I, I know who has me. I know whom I believed in, and I'm, I'm, I know can go to the point when I believed him, and I'm calm in my spirit because he is Able, dunamis, dunatos, mighty, powerful, strong to keep, to guard, to defend, to keep. That's the word used for a sentinel who's guarding with his life whatever he's supposed to be guarding. It's a military term. And let me remind you of something. You did not save yourself, and you don't keep yourself saved. God keeps you. 
God's never lost a single soul. <laughs> Left to ourselves, we would lose our salvation. I can't save myself in the first place. I can't keep myself saved. Holy Spirit does an adequate job of that by living in me and you. 1 Peter 1 says that we are kept by the power of God. You're not going to know any greater knowledge than that right there, folks. You may have a Ph.D. piled higher and deeper. I've got lots of degrees, too. But I want to tell you the greatest knowledge I have is to know that Jesus Christ has saved me. Amen. He's also made the greatest commitment. I know I, and whom I have believed, and I am calm in my spirit that he is able to keep what I committed to him. The word commit is a deposit. It's a banking term. You, you committed your soul into the hands of God through Jesus Christ. Now, you make a lot of commitments in your life. Think about all the commitments, all the places that you've signed your name, and you've made commitments. But the greatest commitments you'll ever make, ever, for all eternity, is to commit your life to Jesus Christ. He also said, I have the greatest hope until that day. You don't know when that day is going to be. Neither do I. But I do know as a 12-year-old boy, when I committed my life to Christ, I've already prepared myself for that day whenever it is for me. Now, hopefully, that day for all of us will be the rapture. But there's no guarantee of that. That day may be that day for you today. Seriously. We don't know. We don't know how old we are because we don't know when we're going to die. But Paul said, I got the greatest hope because I'm going to win either way. <laughs> if I die here on the earth, I go home. If God frees me here, I'll keep serving him. The greatest hope. Folks, he says in chapter 4, verse 8, in the future there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also all who have loved his appearing. The truth is, as believers, our hope is still in Jesus Christ. God still answers prayer. He is still on the throne. Our future and eternity is still secure. God's word is still true because we know the end of the book, we still have the reason to rejoice. We can still trust God and not man. God still saves. And you and I have blessed assurance of our salvation. People who are always trying to be legalistic about their salvation are some of the most miserable people on earth because they, aren't, they don't have that persuasion in their heart and soul. I'm persuaded. I calm in my spirit. He's able to keep what I committed to him until that day. Paul then reminds Timothy to stand unwaveringly on God's word. Verse 13, hold fast 
the pattern of sound words, which you've heard from me in faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. The, the word pattern is the outline sketch, such as an architect reads before building the blueprints. He said, hold fast to the blueprints of God's word. God tells us what to do. You know, it's amazing. God didn't, there's not a lot of don'ts in there. <laughs> and all the don'ts are usually good things like don't be bitter and don't be unforgiving and those kinds of things. But God's word is our direction to honor him, to live our life for him, to stand unwaveringly on God's word. Would you know good theology if you heard it? Years ago, a group of students at Harvard University tried to fool the world-renowned zoologist um, Agassiz, A-G-A-S-S-I-Z, I I think is how you say his name. But anyway, they took a bunch of different parts off of different insects and put them together so meticulously they created a new bug. Obviously, it was dead. You got that. But they were so proud of themselves, they thought, we're going to fool our professor. And the day came when they brought this creation of theirs that they were sure would baffle the teacher. They brought it before him. And he began to look at it with great care. And the students grew more and more, they grew more and more assured that they had fooled him. And finally, he said, I've identified this bug. And underneath, they were all laughing, thinking, we got him this time. He said, it's a humbug. (laughs) He knew the difference. When you hear guys on television preaching and telling you certain things, do you know the difference between good and bad theology? Just because they have a TV program doesn't mean they're right. If it violates God's word or it's not interpreting God's word correctly, do you know the difference? Stand unwaveringly on God's word. It's his word whether you believe it or not. Finally, Paul told Timothy to stand unrelentingly with spiritual power. In verse 14, That good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. In other words, to guard what God has entrusted you, he's given you the power to do it. The Holy Spirit in you is the power to live that way. You don't just go through the motions. You walk in the power of the Spirit every day. You're not glowing in the dark. You're not seeing lightning flash across the sky. You're just walking in His Word with the calm assurance that He is in your life. Don't be like the man who, you know, there's lots of jokes about when you die and you go to the pearly gates and Peter lets you in. And this man went through the gates and he walked in. There was a big throne and he heard a voice say, what do you want? And he said, I'm ready for heaven, sir. And this voice said, what makes you think so? Well, sir, I gave to the poor. I went to the church. I never cheated on my wife. I didn't drink and I prayed twice a day. The voice said, you mean you got tax deductions. You wanted people to think highly of you. You were afraid you'd get caught. You were allergic to alcohol and you said grace before meals, don't you? He said, yes, sir. I, did. I was hoping you wouldn't know the difference. 
He knows the difference. You walk daily in the power of God's Spirit in your life. This is anonymous as far as I can tell, but it speaks volumes. I'm part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I've stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My future is secure. I'm finished and done with low living, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, mundane talking, cheap living, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith, lean on His presence, walk by faith, live by prayer, and labor by His power. My face is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven, is and my road is narrow, my way rough, my companions few, my guide reliable, and my mission clear. I cannot be bought, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of adversity, negotiate at the table of the enemy, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, or let up until I've stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, and preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must go till he comes, till give till I draw preach till all know and work till he stops me. And when he comes for his own, he will have no trouble recognizing me. That should be our life. The Lord should easily recognize us as his children. But you know what? If you don't know Jesus, this can't happen. You can be religious. You can go to church. You, it just won't happen until you know Christ. And today you can know Jesus as your Savior. For those of us who've been believers a long time, it's time to stand up for Christ. Not in a hateful way, not in an ugly way, but don't you walk with your head down. You walk with your head straight up realizing that you've been saved by the grace of God and you have the greatest message that anyone could ever hear and what are we ashamed of? Why are we afraid to spread it? Jesus saves. If you don't have a church, maybe this is the place God wants you to come. If you need to be baptized, you need to be saved first. Baptism is a picture of the immersion of the righteousness of Jesus. It's a picture. It doesn't save you. It doesn't wash away sin. But it's not optional either. Because Jesus said, you testify publicly that you've given your life to me. I think he means don't be ashamed of me. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. 